This time I'll read from Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Begin the reading at verse 1. So we'll read the event of the transfiguration of Christ. And we'll read through verse 29, which includes our text, verses 14 through 27, which Jesus works with the father whose child was possessed with a devil. I won't read the text again because of its length. Our text for the sermon will be verses 14 through 29. Begin the reading of God's word at verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make the three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist or knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be said at naught. But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. And now the words of our text. And when he came to his disciples... He saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. 
And he answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this child, since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciple asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. That's as far as you read in God's word. May he bless us in the reading of scripture. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read at the beginning of the chapter 9, Jesus had been transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John. That transfiguration plainly revealed to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, perfectly confirming what they had confessed in chapter 8, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in this transfiguration then, the Father in heaven confirmed that this Christ, His only begotten Son, He will and has obtained his heavenly glory through his atoning death, through his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. And that this exalted Jesus, who speaks to us his truth as God's prophet, which is the emphasis of the book of Mark, that Jesus speaks his word, his doctrine. And therefore, we, as the voice said to the disciples and to us out of the cloud, hear him. Hear my chief prophet and teacher. Chief prophet and teacher of my church. With that truth very abundantly and clearly confirmed before Peter, James, and John, Christ returned with them to the rest of the disciples in the city of Capernaum. 
In the absence of Jesus and the three disciples, a crowd had gathered around those other nine disciples, and there were also in the crowd, in particular, scribes, who were the enemies of Jesus and the disciples. And they were arguing with the disciples about a particular problem. And the problem, as the text points out, is this child of this father, a child who was possessed with a devil, the result of which he was deaf and mute. And the problem was that the disciples could not cast out that devil as they could before in the ministry of Christ. At this time, it was not possible. And the scribes noticed this. And they seized on that opportunity to rail against the disciples and ultimately to discredit the ministry of Jesus as one who is not the true prophet of Jehovah, who does not speak the truth, and we do not need to hear him. To that situation, Jesus returns with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the arguing stops. And Jesus then proceeds to take control of the situation, asks some questions as the Lord. Jesus asked the scribes, what question ye with them, my disciples? And Jesus asked that question, not because he didn't know what was going on in his absence. He knew that. He asked that question as the Lord to call the scribes into account to what they knew about Jesus and what they were doing with that truth in connection with this problem of this child possessed by a devil. In their unbelief, as the text shows, the scribes would not answer. Of course they would not answer. They would not hear him. In their unbelief, they were hardened against God's prophet. Then Jesus asks the father about his only son. And again, Jesus did not ask that question in verse 21. How long long is it ago since this child, since this came unto him? Jesus did not ask that question because he didn't know what this what the situation was, as though he didn't know who this man was or his child. Of course not. The Lord knew this man and his child. In fact, knew them from eternity. They did not need to wear a name tag on their coat or their, their shirt to show Jesus, I am so-and-so. Jesus knew them by name from eternity. He asked this question to bring out of this father their understanding of the need that they have, and to bring out of them and to work in them by the wonder of his grace and the orderly working of that grace in him to bring out of that cry and to bring them to a full understanding of the wonderful salvation that Christ works in us and our seed. And thus this text, beloved, answers the main question 
how is it possible for us to hear him? That's what the Father said out of the cloud when Jesus was transfigured. How are we going to hear him? How shall we embrace the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God? How shall we, having heard him and his truth, then take that truth and as prophets in the office of believer in our daily witness, then go and tell the great things that God has done for us? Jesus told the man in Mark chapter 5 to do. How shall that be fulfilled by us? How does that become a reality in you and your covenant children? That, beloved, is answered by Jesus when he brings out of that man that believing confession concerning Jesus' faith-sustaining word. He cries out, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Call your attention then to the text under that theme, a believing cry for Jesus' faith-sustaining word. Notice, first of all, the demonstrated need. Secondly, the earnest cry. And then the confirming miracle, which is Christ's answer to that cry. What was the outstanding need presented before Jesus? The outstanding need was in both the Father and his only Son. Now we might think, well, pretty obvious what the need is in this situation. It's this Father's Son. And certainly, there was an outstanding need for him to be delivered from that horrible situation in which, in God's providence, he had been placed. This son was was an older teenager of the father by this time, and he was brought to Jesus and to his attention with major problems. He was often overcome with we would describe as epileptic seizures, which involved terrifying convulsions, which are very unpleasant to observe. Further, he was unable to speak. He could shriek and make noise, but he could not speak in plain language. Could not say, I love you, to his parents or various other things. Nor, being deaf, could he hear his parents say to him, I love you. He could not hear them recite the word of God, sing the psalms as they did in those days. He was possessed by a devil, so that being deaf-mute, he was a very lonely son. Worse yet, as the text teaches, that devil possession also caused him to become very violent. He would foam at the mouth and that devil would cause him to injure himself, sometimes casting himself into the fire. And if it were not for his father and mother and his friends rescuing him, surely he would have died. And thus physically, spiritually, this boy 
was wasting away, as the Father says to Jesus. He's pining away, very lonely. And as the Father implies, he was helpless, totally helpless to deliver his son from that horrible affliction. We might say, well, there is the outstanding need of the text. And yet, that's not the case. The Father has a need, and that need of the Father, as well as his Son, is more outstanding than the devil possession of that Son. That outstanding need is made clear against the background of the transfiguration of Christ. In the transfiguration, Jesus receives briefly, for a moment, his heavenly glory. He is on the path, yes, of humiliation, but it's a path for Christ of victory. He will accomplish all that the Father hath sent him to do. He is able to do it. He is willing to do it. There is no question when sitting with Moses and Elijah and talking about the Old Testament and what Christ came to do, there is no question from the viewpoint of the transfiguration of Christ's sure ability to do what he prophesied he would do for his people. Now, this man, although he did not see the transfiguration, he at least had heard about the miracles of Christ. And we imagine living in Galilee that he would have heard the teaching of Jesus as well. He had heard that Jesus had power over devils, having cast out devils earlier in his ministry. He had heard of the doctrine of Jesus, heard that he is the Christ, the son of David, And yet, in what the Father says to Jesus indicates, there is the outstanding need of the text. For what the man says in verse 22 to Jesus had a very serious problem. He says to Jesus, verse 22 at the end, but, having described the horrible situation of his son, then says to Jesus, but, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And there's the problem. It's in that little word, if. In this case, this little word, if, means the man isn't sure. It's possible. But maybe. Maybe if thou canst do something, then he will be healed. Maybe. Possibly. Not completely sure is the father. He's looking at his son's affliction and then saying this to Jesus. But beloved, look at it in the light of the transfiguration of Jesus. Then you see the problem. He's not completely sure. Just after Jesus receiving his heavenly glory... Questioning Christ's ability? That is the error. There is the need. Which Jesus teaches and pinpoints when he said in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I suffer you? O faithless generation. That certainly, we believe, applied to the unbelieving scribes who were his enemies nipping at his heels, trying every possible opportunity, possible way to find an opportunity to discredit his ministry, to show that he is not a faithful servant of Jehovah. But in that faithlessness, they rejected the doctrine of Christ and grew in that hostility against Christ. And concerning them, Jesus said, How long shall I suffer you? Well, with that faithlessness, Jesus would forbear with them according to God's purpose until that was served in his crucifixion, which he was sure to accomplish. But from their faithlessness, Jesus would not deliver them. It was not God's purpose with them. That statement also applied to the, to the disciples. How long shall I suffer with you? Well, concerning Judas Iscariot, just like those evil scribes, until God's purpose was served in the suffering and humiliation of Christ by the betrayal of Judas, and then God's purpose with him would be fulfilled, and the son of perdition would go to the place where God had determined for him to be punished. But regarding the other disciples, the other 11, we might say, does that really apply? Is that accurate? Did not they in chapter 8 say with Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God? And we would say, well, that is a confession of faith. How can Jesus say to them now, faithless? Well, the other disciples were faithless in the sense that in regards to that demoniac son, that devil-possessed son, they did not have the confidence. They did not possess and embrace that sure knowledge in Christ and in his kingdom, in its victory over the kingdom of darkness. They were in that moment slow to understand, lacking conviction of that which is displayed in the transfiguration of Christ earlier in chapter 9. With those disciples, though they have that need of faith, being faithless, the Lord would be long-suffering. He would not cast them off, say, I've had it with you, eleven, away with you. No, he would be long-suffering to them, to lead them and to work with them, work in them, what they needed, faith. And then thirdly, this also applies to the father standing before Jesus with his son. The Lord would be long-suffering to him with regard to his outstanding need. For the father had said, if thou canst. He's not sure of the power of Christ. And that lack of certainty, that doubt, that's not faith. And that's what Jesus comes in love to correct. Jesus rebukes him. He will work with him. He will not cast off his sheep and his lambs, but works with this covenant household 
He says to the man in verse 24, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Literally, Jesus said, Concerning what you said and what you were believing, if thou canst. Concerning your confession just a few moments ago, if thou canst. I say to you, with the authority of the Father and with the Word, all things, according to God's counsel and in harmony with God's commandments, all things are possible to him who believeth, him who believes. Jesus rebuked him, and Jesus corrects him to work in him what he must understand that the question of the moment is not the ability of Jesus. That is never the question, even in our lives. The problem is not the ability of the ascended Lord in his heavenly glory. Here it is to this man, do you believe? Because all things according to the will of God and the counsel of God are possible in Christ Jesus to those who believe. And that demonstrates the need that Jesus sees before him. This lack of true faith. And that's our need as well, beloved, that the Lord demonstrates before us this morning. Our outstanding need is not what we might think it may be today. Yes, we have need for money, but that's not our outstanding need. We have need for clothing. Still, that's not our outstanding need. We have need for food. A little later, you children will notice your stomach will start to get hungry. Yeah, we need food. Still, that's not your outstanding need. When we're sick, we need medicine and the gift of healing. Still, that's not our outstanding need. Our outstanding need is mentioned and pointed out by Jesus when he says, O faithless generation. And we might stand back and say, well, that's not fair. You can't say to me, I'm part of that faithless generation and I don't have faith. That's not fair. No. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee in chapter 4, verse 40? Do you remember what the Lord has said to you in the storms of your life, in pain and suffering, affliction, inexpressible perhaps, similar to what this young boy, this teenager was suffering? And in the midst of that storm, are we not prone to say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? What did the Lord say to you? Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? How is it that ye in this situation are faithless with respect to me? For the truth is clear. I have my heavenly glory. There's no question about that. And the question is never my ability, never my faithfulness, 
never my mercy to you. And yet, your need then, the problem is the lack of faith. The problem is that unbelief that yet is within us. How is it that ye have no faith? And the Lord demonstrates that need by the very sign of that affliction that the boy has right in front of the man and Jesus and the multitude and the disciples. That was a need which the father could not correct. He could not fix it. His disciples, the disciples of Jesus could not fix that affliction either. They themselves were helpless to show very plainly that the need of faith, that gift of faith, is not a work that the father could produce in the child, nor could the child produce. He could not deliver himself from that devil possession and the tyranny of the devil to bring himself back to life and fellowship with Christ in the word. Impossible. And that's a picture of our problem, of the total darkness of unbelief that we must wrestle with and which yet remains in us. There is in us that lack of knowledge of the truth. There is that proneness to doubt, to fear the enemy of the kingdom of Christ. The inability to know the word and to speak the word as we have heard it and being assured that the word we speak is true in spite of what the outward circumstances may reflect before us. And just as the boy could not be delivered by anyone from his affliction, so it is also true spiritually for you and me. We cannot deliver ourselves. And it is humanly possible for us to reach into the hearts of our children and say, now hear him. Hear the Lord whom I teach to you in your instruction. I can't do that. Or sitting with them in the pew and say, now listen to the minister. Listen to the word of Christ and work that faith in their hearts can't do that. cannot deliver them from the power of that darkness within. That's our need. We depend and we must look to the grace and the word and the power of Jesus Christ, the chief prophet and teacher of Jehovah. Let's look to him who alone can deliver us. We must believe in him. And that Jesus and his true doctrine, doctrine and his unquestionable ability in his glory to heal you, to work in you that which you need. True faith. That, beloved, then worked out of this man that earnest cry. Lord, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. First he confesses, most importantly, Lord. Previously, he had called him Master, which was a very honorable thing to say. Notice now he says much more than that. Lord, Sovereign One, my Lord, 
Now there is no doubt in his mind about who this Jesus is. It's not, well, maybe he can, maybe he can't. No, Lord, crystal clear that Jesus has the ability and as the Lord's Christ also is willing to deliver his sheep and the lambs from the darkness of sin and unbelief. That's a clear confession then of the power and the authority of Jesus, of his sovereignty, of his omnipotence to move all things in God's creation according to God's counsel and purpose. And it also implies in this man when he says, Lord, there is a confession that my response to thee and thy word is the exercise of that authority and power of thy grace to make me understand and to look to thee for that which I need. Christ speaks the word and immediately or straightway there is accomplished this response in the Father. So that because Jesus, for this man in his understanding and because it is true, he is Lord, he then can say, I believe. I know thee. I know thy word as true. Thou art the true prophet of Jehovah. And number two, I am convinced. No more doubt. Thou art my Lord and my God, and I trust in thee for everything, even faith to believe, to see thee, to be assured. Thou art my Lord and my God, and that of my household, my son too. And that's the resulting gift of the word of Christ, a gift of grace, a faith which itself It's beautiful. It's perfect. The Lord speaks, and then the Father believes. The Lord speaks through his word, and we also believe. Then in that true faith, this man also understands, yet I'm not with the Lord in his heavenly glory. No, I'm still here in this life, so that there is this third part to his confession, which shows that he is truly wise. Help thou mine unbelief. Be constantly helping me with regard to my unbelief that yet remains. And in that confession, this father faithfully submits to the word of Christ. He doesn't say to Jesus, by calling me faithless, that's not fair. That's rather cruel, in fact. No, he doesn't argue with the Lord. Yes, Lord. It is true. There is in me, yes, that faithlessness. And over that he weeps, according to the text, in tears. With tears he cries out, of joy, Lord, I believe. And in those tears also of sorrow, there is yet in me this unbelief. Why have I been so unbelieving concerning the glory and the reality of my Lord? knowing that inability of himself to overcome that unbelief, cries to the Lord for that mercy to deliver him from that unbelief so that it never 
has dominion over him. That his faith prevails. Do you see, beloved, your need and how you must respond to that? You and your children, we and our seed must confess, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. You and I must confess, Jesus is not just Christ, and then he comes to us in the Lord's day and he gives us, through the word, some suggestions and advice to follow in the preaching of the word, and okay, that's nice, and let's follow that. No, he comes to us in his heavenly glory. Lord, sovereign one, omnipotent one, also in his grace unto us, he is omnipotent and sovereign. So that without him, Lord, there is no salvation. There is no faith. There is nothing apart from thee. I believe, Lord, because thou art my Lord, I believe, we believe through the working of the Holy Spirit in connection with his word. Nevertheless, Do you recognize what yet remains with us in this life, beloved? You and I still have that enemy, unbelief. Slow to understand the scriptures. It's true for all of us. Even the pastor, the ministers of the word too. Our knowledge of the truth is easily corrupted. We're prone to be distracted from the word. Our faith is weak. We don't submit to the commandments of God as we should and think, well, here are the commandments, but at this time of the day, because I'm feeling so tired, I'm going to walk in unrighteousness rather than in the path of righteousness because this is far more fun than the bondage of this. That is unbelief. And that's our unbelief. And when God declares to us, I have forgiven your sin, or I will never leave you nor forsake you, or I will grant to you all the things that you need in this life, day by day, how do we respond? Mostly in doubt. If thou canst, then I will receive daily bread today. If maybe it's possible my sins will be forgiven. Maybe it's possible I will be delivered from the corruption of my sin. Maybe. You see, beloved, how much we need the Lord to come to our aid, to conquer that unbelief, and to work in us the gift of faith, to work that certain knowledge of the Word of God, all of the Scriptures, according to the Reformed faith. And work in us that assured conviction and confidence that what Christ, our chief prophet and teacher, declares to us and writes within us, that is true. Not just for all the other saints of God, but also for us personally. He is my Lord. That's why I believe. Now, Lord, help thou my unbelief.
The remaining question is, well then, will the Lord answer your cry? Is he going to listen to you? All of your unbelief and not trusting in him so frequently and walking in paths of disobedience out of unbelief? Will the Lord answer that cry? And the answer is yes, which the Lord confirms in the miracle. Upon drawing out of that man his confession of his need, drawing out of him his confession of the Lord and a confession of faith, the Lord answers him in the Lord's orderly, marvelous working of that gift of faith to its fullness. He speaks to the unclean spirit in that boy, thou deaf and dumb spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. I am the Lord. This is my territory. Out. And Jesus speaks that word with the same efficacy and the same power we must understand as he spoke at the beginning as Christ when he made the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and straightway, there's light. That's the kind of power Christ, our chief prophet, has when he speaks his word to you and me. Straightway, by the working of the Holy Spirit, the word is effective. And so it was in this unclean boy. Now the devil did not leave without any expression of hatred, of course, caused the boy to shriek, had him fall to the ground, rent him sore, made him go into terrible convulsions upon the ground. His mouth was foaming, showing very plainly the attitude of the kingdom of darkness for the the lambs and the sheep of Christ's flock. They hate you. The devils under Satan's control will do everything possible to destroy the flock. When they tempt you to walk in sin, it's not because they love you. When you're tempted into sin, it's because they hate you. The kingdom of darkness hates you. And that's clear. But fear not, beloved. The Lord is in his heavenly glory. And that's demonstrated in the miracle when Jesus takes the boy off the ground, takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and verse 27 says, He arose. The boy did not reach out to Jesus, lift up his hand, or even wiggle his fingers. Jesus, in all his almighty sovereignty and his goodness to that family, reaches down, takes up the boy, and restores him again to health, both physically and spiritually. So the boy is able to communicate again with his parents. Since the days he was a child, he was not able to do that. Now he can speak to them plainly. Didn't have to go to school to learn his language. Immediately he could speak fluently, clearly, and also with the Lord and the disciples. He's restored to spiritual communion and fellowship with the Lord. Able to hear Christ and speak about the wonderful things which the Lord had done to him. Surely the Lord answers the cries of his people when they cry out, Lord, I believe, help thou 
mine unbelief. That miracle then illustrates that Jesus does answer your cry. He will work faith in you and in your seed. He will work in you the faith. And that faith by which we understand and hear him. And understand, beloved, he works the faith to know our need. He works the faith to cry out unto him. And he works the faith to receive that fullness of that healing in Jesus Christ. Christ works in that orderly way, just as he did in the beginning, very orderly way in the beginning, so he works in his new creation in a very orderly way of grace. He works the confession from beginning to end, which comes to its fullness, Lord, I believe. In us he works, the faith which has its source in Christ, its focus on Christ, the faith which turns to him, the faith which hears him, embraces him, and a faith then which walks with him in this life, in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. How does he do that? That's also shown in the miracle to you and me. Christ from his heavenly throne reaches down and takes hold of us to work that faith in you and me. Still today, by his hand, he reaches down. And the hand by which he reaches down to work in you is the hand of his word and spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Through that word preached, Christ, yes, he does harden those who are not his sheep, as illustrated in Judas Iscariot, and the scribes in the text. But he also softens and works true faith in his sheep and lambs as shown in this father who says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. That gesture of the Lord reaching down with his hand to lift that son up and restore him to health, that reaching down and lifting him up is the gesture, beloved, of his mercy, a mercy which we will never deserve, a mercy which we cannot earn, a mercy which is sovereignly given to us for no explanation in you and me or in our children. It is totally mercy, which knows our affliction and comes and reaches down and removes us from that affliction. That's a mercy, beloved, which we need administered to us Constantly. How long will the Lord suffer us? Fear not, beloved, the Lord is long suffering to you, not willing that any of his sheep should perish, not one of his lambs to perish, but all to come to repentance and faith in him. That's the word of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. That is sure, and you must believe that. You say to me, prove that it's sure. Well, beloved, that gesture of reaching down and lifting up is reflected in its fulfillment when Jesus came down to us and took our place and on the cross died for you and me, shed his blood to wash us from the guilt of our sin and the guilt of our unbelief. 
to restore us and reconcile us unto the Father in love and in a life in which we hear him, see him, know him, and can communicate with the Father. And we have that life because that Christ arose again into heavenly life and immortality so that in our covenant head, Jesus Christ, in principle, we sit with him in heavenly glory. That assures us, beloved, that the Lord will conquer our unbelief. Yes, it is great. Yes, it will be present all our days. Yes, there is much error, much doubt in you and me. That makes us weep. Makes us to weep like this man. Nevertheless, we have the tears of joy also, knowing that our Lord is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, even the trouble of that war against our unbelief. He is with us by his word and spirit to work in you and to sustain in you faith in him so that the day will come when he will take you up to be with him and then there will be no more interruptions in that faith, no more unbelief to contend with. It's finished. We will see him and hear him as he is and we will speak to him and to one another perfectly without error, to his glory, the great things which the Lord has done for us and in us and through us. And that certain hope, beloved, in Jesus Christ, may your earnest confession be day by day, Lord, I believe, constantly be helping me to overcome and help me to overcome that unbelief in me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, grant to us by grace and spirit that this word also may be written upon our hearts. We may be daily conscious of our dependence upon thee for true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us this so that we may hear his voice So by that faith, follow him, trusting not in ourselves, but in him alone, who is our righteousness, our sanctification, our wisdom, our redemption. In his name we pray, amen.